Well, good evening. Would you turn in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning in verse 27. We're going to finish the chapter tonight. Before we begin, and I almost forgot, but I'm glad I didn't. We have a whole host of people listening live on the radio from the coast of California all the way to the other coast and uh, several places in between that are listening live. Would you give them a warm welcome to this service? The first word in our paragraph tonight is the word peace. Now that is the most sought-after experience in life. It is not money. It is not fame. It is not pleasure. Let me tell you, it's peace. Everybody wants it. Everybody dreams of it. People sing about it. They want peace. I read something interesting about the late British actor Peter Sellers. He was tormented in his adult life. Miserable would be a better term. In fact, he had a sort of an identity crisis where at the end, his latter days, he reverted back to the characters that he played in his movies. He started doing their voices. He was not comfortable being Peter Sellers. He was, hello, I'm Inspector Clouseau, if you remember those movies. And he had multiple marriages which contributed to his uh, experiences of feeling dissatisfied. One of his wives, one of his many wives, in describing Peter Sellers, said that he was in a constant state of turmoil about his purpose on this planet. He lacked peace, inner peace. Now this is the time of the year, this is the season where we start singing more and more about peace, as if it's this chant, this wish. We will sing, as many will, the familiar song that says, Peace on the earth. Goodwill toward men. But this season, many are going to sing those words with, with a grimace. Because while they sing it, they will be asking, well, where is it? And when the angel said that 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem, what was the angel mocking? As he could maybe foresee down through the ages the plan of God? Where is the peace? This has been a season of terrorism and attack and chemical warfare and war on foreign soils. So where is the peace? Well, that's precisely why this section that we're about to read fits this season that we are in in our country. Because though Jesus speaks of and promises peace in the same breath, He speaks of troubles, fears and Satan's activities. In fact, when Jesus says and promises the word peace, he knows he is about to face a violent death. He will be beaten, he will be killed, and he says peace. The conditions that I described, terrorism, warfare, uh, unrest, those are normal conditions for our planet. They are not abnormal. That is the norm. Now, I think we haven't realized that in this country as much, but it really is the norm. In fact, there has hardly been a time on this planet where there has been peace. And usually the peace has been an enforced peace. It's peace with a gun pointed at you. 
In fact, it is estimated since 3600 B.C. there have been 14,351 wars, large and small scale. The total amount of people that were killed in those wars over that period of time, 3.64 billion. That is why somebody noted that peace is that brief, glorious moment in history when everyone stands around reloading. That's what happens. That's the history of our planet. It hasn't been a time of peace. It's been very rare to have a time of peace. Now, here's a true story. I found it really interesting. There seemed that there was a retired couple back in the 70s. They were so alarmed at the threat of nuclear war that it was their goal to find the safest place in the world, free from war, free from nuclear war. And they searched and they traveled and they found what they thought was the safest possible place in the world. It was down in the South Atlantic, a chain of islands about 300 miles off the coast of Argentina. They were so excited with their little paradise and they, they wrote to their pastor, we found it, a place of peace. It was the Falkland Islands. And shortly thereafter, if you remember your history back in 1982, it turned into a war zone where over a thousand people were slaughtered and 10,000 were captured as Britain and Argentina went to war in paradise. The peace that Jesus Christ speaks of that we're about to read is not the peace in terms of the absence of external conflict or the absence of physical war. It's the absence, really, of internal conflict. Let's read it. Let's look at it, and then we'll expound on it. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. The peace that Jesus describes is not geographical like the Falkland Islands. Uh, it is not locational. It is relational. It comes from being right with God. Now, I heard a story. I don't know how accurate it is, but I heard a couple of different spins on it. That one of the Caesars in Rome, while he was reigning over Rome, heard about a man in the Roman Empire who had a huge burden of debt, couldn't pay it off, but he slept like a baby every night despite his debt. And it so impressed Caesar that he sought to find the man and buy his bed from him. <laughs> Thinking, ah, that's it. It's the bed he sleeps on. It's that mattress they sell down at the mattress store here in Rome. I've got to get one. No, no, peace comes when you can lay your head down on the pillow at night because you're at peace with God. You're forgiven. The guilt is removed. 
It doesn't come from living in the Falkland Islands. It doesn't come from having the softest mattress. It doesn't even come from counting sheep. It comes from talking to the shepherd, knowing him. Now tonight we're going to look at this peace that Jesus promised in three different ways. First is peace in a troubled world. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. They were troubled when he said that. That's why he said it. Neither let it be afraid. They were fearful when he said it. That's why he said it. We have a description. He calls it peace. The word Jesus used in the Greek language is irene, which means rest. Peace is a translation. Quietness. You know, it was a common greeting in those days to offer somebody peace. When you go into a house or you leave, you'd say, peace, shalom. They still do it in Israel. Jesus told the disciples when he sent them out on a mission, he said, whatever house you enter into, first say to that house, peace to this house. That's how Paul opens his letters, grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ our Lord. But the world that we live in is not a peaceful place, as we've already determined. There's not a whole lot of external peace. And yet Jesus promises it. Well, I would say even there's pressures from all sides. If you're a businessman, some of you find yourself, especially during this season of economic challenge, to produce more. You don't feel peaceful, you feel pressured. Some of you are students. You're taking those midterm finals. You feel pressured to memorize and to produce the right answer to get the best grade. If you're a parent, you feel pressured during this season. You're providing for your children. And if you have a lot of them, there's a lot of pressure. There was a couple who received after their fifth child. After their fifth child, a friend gave them a playpen. And it took a couple of months, but the thank you letter came back. Thank you for the playpen. It's wonderful. It's exactly what I needed, wrote this mother. I sit in it every afternoon and read, and the kids can't get close to me. She wanted some peace. But the peace Jesus speaks of isn't the, the playpen peace. It's not the absence of children. Notice what he he describes it as. Not only peace, but he says, my peace. Mark that. Literally, my own personal peace. It's the kind of peace Jesus manufactures and distributes. It is the peace that he establishes for you and passes on as a legacy to you. It's the thing that ought to mark you because you follow him, right? You're in Christ, so my peace I give to you. You know, people can't see Jesus. Uh, They might think they see him in a cloudburst or in a tortilla or in some apparition somewhere, but Jesus physically is not to be found, but he ought to be found in the character of the believer. The stamp on the believer ought to be peace. That's what the Bible says. Galatians tells us in chapter 4, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. There's the mark of it. I wonder if some of you, however, don't still picture God the wrong way. Not not as the giver of peace, but 
the frowning giant in the sky with his arms folded over his robe, scowling at you. That's unfortunate because if you have come to Christ, his thoughts toward you are the very opposite, right? That's what Jeremiah wrote. He said, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace. Thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So it's the peace of Jesus that he promises. Now it would help to sort of go over what the Bible distinguishes. There's the difference between peace with God and the peace of God. And I want to describe those to you. They are in order. You, you have to have peace with God first before you can have the peace of God, which is the experience of peace that Jesus is referring to. In Romans chapter 5, it speaks of the first kind. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that kind of peace does not refer to a peaceful feeling and warm fuzzies. It speaks of the absence of war, the absence of a conflict with God. You've raised the white flag. There's no battle between you and God. Now, you may be an unbeliever tonight, and you may be thinking, well, I've, I've got nothing against God. I'm not at war with God. That's not the issue. God has something against you. That's why you're at enmity, at war with Him. There's an issue of sin. God cannot have peace with an unpardoned sinner. In fact, listen to Romans. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And Isaiah plainly said, There is no peace, says the Lord, to the wicked. Here's the point. God and man naturally are at a state of war. And until you raise the white flag and say, I surrender, I come to Christ, take away all my sins... That battle continues. But the moment you surrender, you have peace with God. You have peace with God. And that's the idea here. Um, now, I've heard unbelievers, when I bring that up, they'll say, well, you might think that, Skip, but I feel perfectly at peace in my life. I'm a peaceful person. I'm not a Christian. I don't follow your Jesus, but I feel so peaceful. Well, you're delusioned. <laughs> and let me give you an example. Let's say you are running from the American government. You've committed a crime against America, and you're on the run, and you flee to somewhere like South America. And there you are in your foreign refuge, and you feel so peaceful. You might feel that way, but step back into our borders. Until you make peace with American government on American terms, you are at war with the government. And until you make peace with God on His terms, which is the cross of Christ, you are perpetually at war with God until the white flag goes up and you say, I surrender. That's what Isaiah meant concerning Jesus Christ. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. Now once that's dealt with, once being at peace with God is over, there's a second kind of peace. This is the experience. It's the peace of God. The white flag has gone up. You've surrendered, and there's that, ah, oh, that sigh, that, oh, I feel like this is right. I feel so much better. That's that feeling of tranquility. It's the peace of God. And that's what Paul refers to, that you can, because you have now a relationship, you can call on Him for everything. 
Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Now let me just say before we move on that just as an unbeliever who's at war with God can have a subjective feeling of peace, at the same time, a believer who is at peace with God cannot feel peaceful from time to time. Why is that? A couple reasons. Number one, it could be you're ignorant that the war's over. You still think God's mad at you. You still think there's this enmity because you're not perfect and you, you are ignorant of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to take away your sin. Number two, it could be there is an area of disobedience in your life that you're holding on to that you need to get right with God and so that intimate communication has been cut off. But it is possible to be at peace with God and not necessarily feel this peace. But when you are obedient to Him and you do know the Scriptures, I would sum it up by saying Jesus Christ as Savior makes you have the peace with God. Jesus Christ as Lord makes you have the peace of God. He's now in charge. You understand. Ah. Third, this is described as an otherworldly peace. This is all in the description. Notice Jesus says, Not as the world gives do I give to you. I like that. You see, the world's peace is a shallow peace. It doesn't last. It's the peace of empty words, broken peace treaties. Um, It's the kind of fragile peace that can be broken by one word from the enemy or the, 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 the wrong glance or look can sever that kind of a peace. In the 4,000 plus years of recorded history, the world has been at peace 8% of the time. That's what I alluded to at the beginning. A total of, experts say, 286 years in all of history has the world been at peace. 8,000 peace treaties have been forged and broken. Let's think of peace in the Middle East. How many times have you heard that? How many times has the negotiating table been there and then a peace treaty drawn up and broken? It's the peace of the world. The peace of the world is a temporary feeling. The peace of the world is elusive and people look for it in so many areas, don't they? Oh, if I had... If I had that bank account, I'd be so peaceful. No, you wouldn't. You'd have to worry about that all the time. Well, if I had that, if I could only marry her, I'd be peaceful. If I could only dump him and marry the other guy, I'd be peaceful. I heard of a man who took a tour through a mental institution. He was amazed to see a man in a cell, his arms tied together by the jacket he was hitting his head against the padded cell, saying, Linda, Linda, how could you, Linda? And the guy was frightened. What's that all about? He said, that's a guy who had a relationship with a girl named Linda. It was his girlfriend, and she jilted him and ran off. And he just went nuts. Wow. They went in a couple cells later. He saw another man. Linda, Linda, how could you? And he said, well, who's this guy? He said, that's the guy that married Linda. My peace, Jesus said, I give to you, not as the world gives. It's otherworldly. It's his own personal peace. 
After the description, there is a demeanor of peace. This is how it acts. Notice the commandment. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Now, those of you who uh, know language, you'd be interested to know that this is a command, an imperative, a present active imperative. And a, a better, more full translation would be stop an act of being agitated that has already begun in your life. Stop it, disciples. I know you're, you're agitated. I know you're fearful. Stop that action. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, they had every reason to be agitated, didn't they, from the human standpoint? Jesus said he was leaving. Jesus would soon be killed. They would be absolutely disoriented. They would scatter in confusion. They had every reason physically, normally, to be agitated if this was the world's peace. But it's not. It's his peace. The natural response in catastrophe is fear. The supernatural response is peace. My peace, I give to you. Stop this, this ongoing activity of being agitated. You remember the time that Jesus sent his disciples across the Sea of Galilee? And, and of course, he knew what was coming. He knew a storm was brewing, right? A big one. Well, he sent them across. You know the story. They were almost drowning. And Jesus comes to them in the storm. And what does he say to them? He says, be of good cheer. And they're thinking, yeah, right. We're dying. You're walking. Who is that? What is that? Be of good cheer. Now, they didn't recognize Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came to them on the very thing they feared, the storm. They didn't expect Jesus to be in the storm. He's the guy who fixes storms, right? And so many of us have the same thinking. Well, we expect to experience Jesus beside the still waters where it's calm and perfect. Oh, that's where God is. Learn to look for Jesus in the very thing perhaps you fear the most. It could be His pathway of coming to you. Oh, that surgery that is so ominous that you may be looking at, that may be the way Jesus will manifest Himself more closely than ever before. The feared death of a relative may be the way Jesus manifests himself to you in the most intimate of ways. There's an area I have told you about before. I have read about it on a few occasions. Sailors call it the cushion of the sea. It is a place far below the top of the waters, and they say that no matter how rough and violent the waves are on the surface of the sea, way down below where the submarine can sort of niche itself. It's perfectly calm and still. And there is a place in Christ. I've seen some go there from time to time. The waters are pretty tough. The situation is pretty bleak. There are storms brewing. They have every reason to be troubled and afraid, and yet their demeanor is peace. They've arrived at that cushion in Christ. Now, that's the, that's the first portion of this, and we've only covered one verse, so we better get going. That's peace in a troubled world. Look at verse 28 now. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. The peace that Jesus promises His disciples is not only peace in a troubled world, but 
here peace with the absent Christ. Now Jesus told them several occasions, we don't have to go over them, that he was leaving. He told them that night. That bugged them. In fact, Peter said, where are you going? How come I can't come? Well, Peter, you can't come because... And he explains, well, I'll go with you. And he just kept pressing it. They were just disoriented when Jesus said he was leaving. Now, why were they so disoriented? Because they were thinking only about themselves, not about him. What do you mean you're leaving? What about us? What about me? What about my needs? But Jesus said, you know, if you really loved me, you would think about what it means to me to leave. I'm going to be with my Father. I'm going to arrive at that goal of being reunited before the Incarnation as before the Incarnation. Now, I want to come back to this, but I have to touch on this verse because it's been so abused. Uh, Verse 28, he says, For my Father is greater than I. That seems to be one of the favorite verses for Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians who would deny the deity of Christ. And they'll point at this and go, Aha! Jesus is saying that He's less important than God. He was a created being because my Father is greater than I. That's wrong. There's a difference between saying my father is greater than I or saying my father is better than I. You see, I would ask this of you. Is the President of the United States better than you in terms of a human being, in terms of who he is on this planet? No, not at all. He's not any better, but he is greater than you by virtue of his office. And when Jesus here says my father is greater than I am, he's saying this from his humanity, from his incarnation. He is speaking of position, not essence. He has emptied himself, Philippians 2 tells us. He became a man. He he took on the form of a servant. He died the death of a cross. Therefore, read the rest of it, God has highly exalted him that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This simply proves once again the Trinity and it is emphasized later on in the prayer of Jesus in John 17 when Jesus prays this, And now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself, listen, with the glory which I had with You before the world was. Even as Jesus emptied Himself of the prerogatives of glory He is still deity in human flesh and He longs to be reunited with the Father to experience once again that exalted position of glory. My Father is greater than I. But the principle for for us this evening in verse 28, notice, if you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. When you love Jesus Christ, you want what He wants. You don't think about, well, is this good enough for me? You think, does this glorify Him? And when you think that way, the experience is peace. The experience is peace. You'll rejoice because you have peace. Now apply that to somebody who has died in Christ. A loved one, a friend of yours that you know, who is a Christian who loved Jesus and has now passed into eternity. Their passing is a loss. We mourn, we cry, we grieve, we miss them. We are poorer because they're not with us. But at the same time, we rejoice because they're in heaven. I don't, I don't ever feel sorry for a dead Christian. Ever. Oh, that poor soul. Oh, yeah. 
Let's see. He's in heaven, in glory. No taxes, no tears, no, no worries. We rejoice. And in that we have peace. Then let's apply this to ourselves. Here we are. Jesus isn't with us. We don't see Him physically. He's left 2,000 years ago. We're waiting for His return. But we have peace. Why? Well, verse 29 tells us, Now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. The reason we're at peace tonight, though we've never seen Jesus, there's no physical evidence that we can say, I've touched Him, I've seen His hair, His eyes, I've walked with Him in Galilee, is that Jesus has made so many promises already that have come true. They're fulfilled. I told you in advance that when it comes to pass, you'll know. He predicted He would be arrested in Jerusalem. It happened. He predicted He would be beaten. It happened. He predicted that He would be betrayed. It happened. He predicted that He would die on a cross. It happened. He predicted He would be resurrected. It happened. And He's predicted that He'll come back. And I have a hunch it'll happen. And He's predicted that when you die, you'll be in God's presence. So I believe that's going to happen. Because so much of what He has already said has come to pass, it gives us great confidence in the future. So, let's sum it up before we come to the last point. True peace comes from being right with God. The sin issue is taken away and you can breathe that sigh of relief because you can experience now the tranquility of God. This true peace is Jesus' own peace. It is not dependent on outward circumstances. It's not dependent on a perfect environment. In fact, you can have this kind of a peace in the most hostile of conditions. And then finally, also, true peace is not being dependent on the physical presence of God, the tangible touching of Christ or feeling or even a tangible result. But we can have it because He's promised and what He's promised has come to pass. And so the other promises we can hang our hats on. Third, and we close with this, peace in treacherous warfare. Peace in treacherous warfare. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. doesn't mean he didn't like them. He wasn't tired of expending his energy for them. Here's why. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Who would that be? Satan. And he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. These last two verses complete this picture of peace. Jesus' promise of peace is in the midst of a troubled world, in the midst of a time of waiting, and finally, peace in treacherous warfare with the devil. Did you know that about, according to Gallup organization, 70% of Americans believe in the devil? However, 30, no, about 50% of those 70% believe that he's a real entity, another half of the 70% believe it's just an idea, a concept, an impersonal force. In Europe, it's even more staggering. Most Europeans say they believe in heaven. Most Europeans say they don't believe in hell. Most Europeans say they believe in a God of some kind. Most Europeans do not believe in a devil. Jesus would disagree with you if that's what you hold to. 
Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Jesus spoke of Satan as a personal being. He spoke of hell, by the way, more than any other person in Scripture. And Jesus spoke even more about hell than heaven. Now, he talks about the ruler of this world. And some of you guessed it right. It's Satan. In John chapter 12, Jesus uses the same term. The ruler of this world will be cast out, Jesus said. In... um, 2 Corinthians 4, Paul calls Satan the God of this world or the God of this age who blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them in spiritual darkness so that they wouldn't come to the gospel. Now, why is Satan given terms like that? It almost seems exalting. Why would the Bible call him the God of this age, the ruler of this world? Because of Genesis 3, the fall. The fall. When Adam disobeyed God and obeyed Satan, he acted as what we call the federal head. He became the Benedict Arnold of the universe. He turned it all over, the dominion, the cosmos, the world of mankind, over to the sway of the devil. That's why John writes in 1 John chapter 5, For we know the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So he is the ruler of this world. And when Adam said, yes, I'll disobey God, yes, I'll obey Satan, sin entered, death entered, pain entered. Romans 5, 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Okay, what is Jesus referring to when he says, I'm not going to talk more much with you because the ruler of this world is coming. I think he's referring to the fact that Judas Iscariot is about to betray him. He's very aware of satanic activity. And he's simply saying, we don't have much time left. I've got chapter 15 and 16, that's it. That's it. That's the last message he will give his disciples. He's going to go to the garden. He'll be arrested. But what's interesting is he doesn't say that. He doesn't say Judas is coming. He goes back behind the curtains to the satanic plot of assassination. The prince of this world is coming. In fact, just glance quickly over at chapter 13, verse 26. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. And Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now keep that in mind when you read this verse. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Probably at that very moment, Judas was arranging the betrayal, but it was Satan using the pathetic instrument of Judas Iscariot for this assassination plot. My point, though, is this. Jesus knew it. He predicted it. And he talks about peace. My peace I give to you. At that very moment, knowing Satan was overshadowing that, that Last Supper, Jesus was at perfect peace even when confronted with Satan's activities. Notice, he's coming and he has nothing in me. I like that. But that the world may know that I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. In other words, Satan has no handle on my life. Satan has no control or power in this. He's not going to kill me because Jesus would voluntarily give his life for the world. Jesus said in John chapter 10, Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. 
I have the power to lay it down and to take it up again. Now let's apply that. You and I in Christ can say the same thing. Satan is coming. He's tempting. He's aggravating. He's accusing. He's assaulting. But I'm in Christ. He has nothing in me. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Now on one hand, I would say don't underestimate the devil, as some people do. Listen, he's had thousands of years of studying human nature. He knows how to tempt you. He knows your weaknesses. But don't overestimate him. It's not God and the devil and they're duking it out and who's going to win, ladies and gentlemen. Satan's ahead by one. Now Jesus. No, it's not like that at all. Satan is nothing in me. Is your peace... Uh, let me rephrase that. Is his peace that he promised to you, is it being threatened lately? Have you felt that peace in you, that, that tranquility of spirit in the midst of a troubled world? Has that been threatened by the troubled world? By the attacks, by the terrorism, by the war? Maybe by the fact that there's nothing really tangible that you can point to and say, there's the, there's the evidence that he's in my life this week in the midst of temptation? Has that peace been assaulted? There, uh, there is an army base that was conducting war games, but the leaders of the base didn't want to use real ammunition, and so the instructors told the soldiers to make, to imitate noises in the battle so that when they confront an enemy, if they see him, if it's a rifle, they say, Bang, bang. The guy has to fall over. That's how they conducted it. If it was a knife thrust, it was stab, stab. If it was a grenade throw, they'd have to say lob, lob. Well, this went on for a better part of an hour when one soldier spotted his enemy. And he said, bang, bang. Lob, lob. Got closer. Stab, stab. And, and the enemy stood there. Didn't do anything. The soldier said, now wait a minute. You're not playing fair. I just saw you, I spotted you, and I said, bang, bang. I said, lob, lob. I said, stab, stab. And his enemy smiled and said, rumble, rumble. I'm a tank. <laughs> and when you hear the accusations of your enemy, bang, bang, stab, stab, lob, lob, stand in Christ, and say, rumble, rumble, I'll be a tank. See, when God gives you His peace, nothing can destroy it, not even the devil. But before you experience the peace of God, you must experience peace with God. And until you've come to Christ, you are at war. You are at war. Until you have surrendered your life and said, I'm yours, Lord, based upon Jesus' work, I come to you, you are at enmity with God, the Bible says. You see, that is the great irony of our times. We love the signs, God bless America. We want His blessing. We don't want God. This is the time of the year when we talk about the Prince of Peace is coming and peace on earth. We want the peace, but not the Prince. You can't have the peace until you have the Prince. Heavenly Father, that is Your Word. It is clear, it is written over and over again that mankind is at war with you until they come to salvation 
through the blood of Jesus Christ on a cross. Lord, if we're in You, if we know You, then You have promised to us not just a a temporary, tranquil feeling that comes and goes, but Lord, You promised Your own personal peace. It is solid. It is constant. We can have it, Lord, not with just a perfect, calm environment, but in the midst of troubled waters. We can have it, though we see no tangible reason at the point, at the moment. And we can have it, though we're being assaulted and assailed and tempted and accused by the enemy. Because we know your promises, we know your plan, because we rest in that, because the flag of surrender has been raised we can experience the peace of God. May that mark us, Lord. And Lord, I would pray for those who have not come clean, who have not surrendered their lives to Christ. They're not under that finished act, the blood that was spilled on the cross 2,000 years ago. Lord, it's such a long time ago, but your love is so now, so present. Your forgiveness is so now. And I pray that many would experience the forgiveness of their sin as that sin is acknowledged and repented of. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.